You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. And welcome to the All Creatures Podcast. I'm Angie, and today I have a very, very exciting guest and close friend, an old coworker that I'm going to be talking with today about giant pandas. So I'd like to introduce Michael Brown Palsgrove. He's the curator of Asia Trail and Giant Pandas at the Smithsonian's National Zoo in Washington, D.C. Hello, Michael. Thanks for joining me for this morning cup of coffee. Good morning, Angie. It's so great to catch up with you. I know. It's so fun to obviously hear about your family because Michael and I, of course, have been chatting for like last half an hour and I said, well, <laughs> we better get down. To- <laughs> we- <laughs> we better get to the podcast. Yeah, I'm almost through my coffee, for goodness sake. So we better actually talk pandas. But hearing about his lovely family and his um, his uh, new newish life in Washington, D.C., because you... My, uh, just a brief background. Uh, Michael Brown and I used to work together at a zoo in Chicago, the Lincoln Park Zoo, where he was a very big key in uh, bringing me up as a young keeper and believing in me and even hiring me at the children's zoo. Yeah. I know. Right. right? I remember you came in to interview. You were like waitressing and you were like, I really, really want to start working with animals again. And to be able to just know your, I could see the passion and could hear it in your voice and knew that you had such great potential. I was like, we need to get her on staff and get her started. Yeah. It was amazing, really. And it's so great to see how far you've come and all that you've accomplished. So, right. And it's, and it all goes back to having great mentors and people giving you a chance to get your foot in the door and, and then going from there and then reaching for every opportunity after that. Because then once we were working together, there was so much more, room for potential or growth at the zoo that they supported uh, at my level, of course, at your level. And mm-hmm. I, I would like to say we both blossomed big time <laughs> from, yeah, no, right. Uh, from, I mean, from our early days. I look at where I am. I'm like, yeah, to where I'm in today thinking, you know, the, the curator of giant pandas at Smithsonian's national zoo is like that dream job. Like as a kid, like thinking about, wait, you're going to work at this national zoo with, such an iconic and charismatic species like the giant pandas that people, millions and millions of people watch these pandas on 
the panda cam, like all around the yes, world. Yes, I'm and, one of those millions for and sure. I'm in char- <laughs> and, and I'm in charge of that program. It's amazing. It's so. just incredible. And so, yeah, with that being said, uh, so Michael and I, we go way back. So this is a very fun conversation for me to be having. But I have never worked with pandas, and so he is going to teach us a lot today about pandas <laughs> and, of course, at the amazing program that they have at the National Zoo. But do you want to give uh, the listeners just a, a brief history about your background and, and how have you always mm-hmm. loved animals? Yeah. No, so it's interesting because, you know, I grew up going to zoos. I always loved going to zoos, um, and we had, I grew up in Colorado Springs, Colorado, um, going to the Cheyenne mountain zoo, um, there. And, you know, it was at least a couple times a year we would go visit. And while I love going to zoos, I never imagined myself working at a zoo. I thought I was like, Oh, I want to be a veterinarian, right? That's everyone's mm-hmm. yes, dream job. Yes. Oh, I'm going to grow up and be a veterinarian. Cause that's what you do if you love animals. Um, and it wasn't actually till I went to, um, college and started really looking. I just went to McAllister College in St. Paul, Minnesota, and I had a really just basic biology degree with a biology study, sort of putting together prerequisites that I thought would be appropriate for um, for veterinary school. But we had these seminars that we had different like field experts come in and teach. Mm-hmm. And um, at that point in time at McAllister, they invited in Ani Byers from the at that time was a captive um, breeding specialist group out of uh, Minnesota. And um, uh-huh. she came in to talk about zoo biology and all the biology that went on at the zoo. And it sort of changed like what I thought about zoos and where I might go. And so I still was thinking about veterinarian, you know, being a veterinarian, but um, I got in a job zoo, a job in the zoo. And I actually started at Cheyenne mountain, the zoo that I grew up going to as a keeper. And from there I I just fell in love. And so um, I worked at Cheyenne mountain for a couple of years. And then I went to Lincoln park um, in 1998. I started at Lincoln park. And so I must interrupt Um, really quick. Yeah. One of my, one of my most favorite animals in the world, uh, Sichuan Takin by the name of Kubla Khan. Yes. I know he was born at the Cheyenne Mountain Zoo before he came to Lincoln Park and uh, yep. uh, enhanced his legacy there at Lincoln Park. Did you know him at the Cheyenne Mountain Zoo? Were you there? I was there. What? I actually oh, man. was a keeper at that point in time. And I can actually remember going to the, I didn't work the hoofstock areas, but he actually was a surprise birth. And he actually spent some time down at the hospital, um, the veterinary hospital. And I can remember going to the veterinary hospital and meeting him when he was a calf. Oh my God. Um, How, and there, when he was like a tiny little, like, furry. Calf, and, uh, so. and for the listeners out there that aren't familiar, we, on, on podcasts, we haven't covered Takins yet. That's T-A-K-I-N. <laughs> Wait, how? <laughs> I know. I, it's so, what, you I, know it? so it's really funny. Are interesting psychology or something. A few of my most favorites, uh, which would be the Grevy Zebra, the Sichuan Takin, we haven't covered because I just I don't know I don't I don't know if I can do them justice or and I want to also try to get experts on to interview them to get people even more excited about them as well and to complement the general species interview that we do. And so it's just it's it's so funny that yeah I just am like holding on to it like how I just don't know when is right time. Now, however, we have done Bactrian camels, which is a huge huge favorite, and of course rhinos. And so I'm obviously the hoof and horn fan. Uh, But so. 
I promise you this, but yes, Sichuan Takins that are basically for listeners out there that don't know briefly, they're like a thousand pound Asian goat yak, gorgeous thing with like a golden flaxen brown color and cute little horns. And uh, they're just, they're gorgeous and as babies. And, so if you get to work with one as a baby, yes. that might be the, that might, yeah. that's in the top two, one, two, three cutest babies ever, I think. Right. And we can relate it back to giant pandas because they actually do live in the same habitat and um, area as the giant pandas. So they are one of the actually species that are being supported by all the conservation work going towards um, giant panda conservation as well. So in saving lands for giant pandas, we're also saving lands for the talk. Yeah. So. Well, and, uh, and so that was going to be one of my questions. If you could maybe give us a brief, if you could maybe give us a brief background on pandas in the wild and, and the conservation efforts that have been going on in the past 20 to 30 years there. Yeah. So I, it really is amazing because part of um, us bringing in uh, giant pandas on loan from China is that we help support conservation um in C2 over there. And so a lot of what we do, um, the National Zoo, along with the Smithsonian Conservation Biology Institute, is capacity building in conservation in C2, so in wow. China. Um, and looking at, um, you know, the landscape um, and the habitat that giant pandas are living in and working on cons- helping them conserve spaces. Um, a lot of the uh, research scientists that are actually associated with Smithsonian Conservation Biology Institute have done extensive camera trapping and work in um, the range country and the ranges where they live to look at not only counting giant panda numbers, but other numbers of animals that live in that same habitat. And so thinking about, you know, the giant panda as a, a really tremendous umbrella species that People, everyone knows a giant panda, but there are so many other species that are being saved because right. of this work. And so being able to know that if we're saving land for giant panda, we're saving other species as well. So it, I think that's just as important as the giant panda work yes, itself. Yes. So. Yeah. And now, oh, go ahead. And, oh, I was going to say, and so a lot of the work that they've even done in the last mm-hmm. 10 years, um, you know, they just, the IUCN has just completed recently another sort of population analysis of giant pandas, and they were recently um, upgraded or uplisted from endangered to vulnerable. So we're at over 1,800 animals now in the wild, and they're planning more um, conservation parks in China now, and they're, they're beginning to explore reintroductions as well. Wow. So they've actually reintroduced I believe nine and they've had seven successful reintroductions of giant pandas back into habitat. Um, And that's really the next sort of milestone and, or like direction of where they're going to be going with giant panda conservation is they're going to be working on um, reintroductions. So that's sort of, you know, I manage the zoo population, the mm-hmm. zoo work, um, and but there's so much more beyond that that's going on over Well, and that's, like you touched on there, uh, that the role that zoos have in conservation as far as rearing some of these animals under human care to learn more about them, learn more about their biology, their nutrition, their reproduction, uh, their densities, their behaviors, all this stuff that will notably help the help 
that will notably help scientists understand how to better protect them in the wild. How much, how much land to conserve? Do they like to be next to each other? Don't they? How long do, how long do the moms stay with the babies? What kind of nutrition do they need? What do they eat? All of these things. And then, like you said, that the apex of that is not only learning about them when they're living under human care, but then reintroduction. And of course, there's several successful stories of that in the U.S. and and in other countries. And yes, to have reintroduction of such a large, iconic herbivore. (laughs) I'll let you tackle that one. Carnivore, herbivore. (laughs) Yeah. So they're... I mean, they're essentially, they have a carnivore mm-hmm. digestive system, but they, we call them obligate um, bamboo eaters. So they essentially sustain themselves only on bamboo, but yet they have a carnivore digestive system. So they have to consume such large quantities of bamboo to actually get the energy they need to sustain themselves. So that's probably why you see them sleeping so much is because either they're eating or sleeping, as we say, because I mean, that sounds like survive, a wonderful so. life to me right now. <laughs> But so, but probably because of, because of, like you said, being obligate bamboo eaters and needing a large amount of this, this plant, they probably, now that we know that they're, we probably, they probably need more land protected than maybe previously thought. They do. I mean, they need very large, they move throughout their range uh, throughout the year because they eat different parts of the bamboo um, throughout the different parts of the year and probably across the elevations of the mountains as well. So we know um, from what we see in the zoo is that during the spring, they're really, uh, they eat a lot of the shoots and then they move it into the new growth of the mm. plant of the bamboo. Um, and, you know, then through the summer into the early fall, they're eating the leaves, but over the winter, then they're actually only eating the stalk of the bamboo and they actually shred the stalk to get to the interior parts of the, of the, um, bamboo and sort of you sort of think about plant biology and where the energy is during different parts of the year it's sort of where they focus their feeding uh, ecology or their energy uh, during during that time of year so in the spring where when they're putting all the energy into shoots the bamboo right. um, that's what that's what they're eating because that's where their most energy is so if you're going to be dependent upon something that has so little energy mm-hmm. anyway, make sure that you're eating the most optimal part of the plant during that time of the year. And and that also has to go with elevation as well, because sure. they can move up and down the mountain um, throughout the spring. And as shoots grow throughout the mountainside, then they can eat that as well. So they definitely need large um, tracts of land to move through. Yeah. To, to follow the bamboo. I mean, not, obviously mm-hmm. not quite mo- migratory, but in a semi migratory pattern to the, fo- yeah, follow follow where the energy dense food is. Yeah. That's really interesting. Mm-hmm. And, and and those are things that luckily the Panda having so many people both in their home country and then here at the States fighting for them that we're able to learn all this amazing information and then be able to apply it. And then we see the increase in numbers by the IUCN, which is yeah. obviously they're not out of the woods or the bamboo. <laughs> obviously they're not out of the woods yet, uh, but it is, it is, must be amazing for you and your fellow, uh, biologists and researchers and zoo specialists to have a win or at least a, like, okay, we're heading in the, yeah, we're I heading think, in the right direction. Yeah. I think to be able to see like, you know, okay, we're, we're increasing the numbers. We're starting to see some success with the, you know, reintroductions. Like, we, we, you know, we see that China has, 
is uh, is putting resources and things towards saving this species. These are all really good things. Yes. And I think it, it, at least we know we're, we're heading in the right direction for this species. Oh, so. That's awesome. And so since you work so intimately with pandas on a daily basis, mm-hmm. uh, except for today, since Michael was so graciously to take his day off to talk with me, <laughs> thank you for that. Uh, when, since you see them five days a week or so, probably more with the, with the higher level role of your duties, uh, can you give the listeners some interesting facts that we may not know or a lot of people may not know yeah. about them? Yeah, I mean, it's it's so interesting because three years ago, I never imagined myself being the giant panda curator at the Smithsonian's National Zoo. I, rem- so- I remember when I heard of, like, I, I either saw the Facebook post or whatever, I was, like, high-fiving, I don't even know, like, you across the country. Like, yeah. Oh my God, that is so amazing. And- yeah. I mean, I knew, I knew very little about, um, you know, about pandas when I got this position. I mean, I had worked with, um, black bears sure. pretty extensively mm-hmm. at Lincoln park. Cause I, I, I worked with them and I've worked with other carnivores and bear species, but I never worked with pandas. And so a lot of it, I had to come in and learn. I mean, sure. I knew, I, I knew from, Actually, the year I uh, applied for the job, they had just had the, the our last birth at the National Zoo. So Bebe was born. In, Bebe, um, I love it. Uh, Bebe, Bebe was born in August of 2015. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that he just turned three yesterday. Actually, was his third birthday. Aww. We had a big celebration for him. So he he is really a most loved uh, panda cub. People from all around the world, watched him grow up. Happy birthday, baby. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, I started and, you know, at the time, uh, Bebe was in still with Mei Shang, his mom. Um, he was like, still like a nine month old cub when I started. I started in April of 2016. Um, and just, uh, at that time, we still had his older sister, uh, Bao Bao, um, at the National Zoo. Um, she was, had been weaned and separated long before Bebe was born and, and was living in our other um, exhibit yard there. And then also at the National Zoo, we have Tian Tian. He's our breeding male. The, uh, so the father of Bebe and Bao Bao. So at the time I started, we had four giant pandas okay. there, um, which is amazing yeah. to have like four in one institution. So yeah, it just to, you know, it's such an iconic, there's only four um, institutions in, um, the United States that have giant pandas. So, uh, San Diego Zoo, uh, the Memphis Zoo and the Atlanta Zoo are the other institutions, um, in, uh, the United States that exhibit, uh, giant pandas. We all, um, all giant pandas that are in the United States are here on loan from China. Mm-hmm. Um, so they are, they're, they're owned by China. Um, and so we each have our own agreement with China of, of what that means. So, but the National Zoo, we have our breeding pair, which are Mei Shang and Tian Tian. Um, and then, you know, we've been trying to breed them for the, they came in 2000. And so we've actually had three successful births at the National That's Zoo. Incredible. So, I just got goosebumps. Yeah. Oh my word. Yeah. So the, the first one was in 2005 was Tai Shang. Uh-huh. Um, so he was actually, uh, it was amazing from what I hear. I'm, I have an amazing staff uh, of keepers that work with me. Um, my assistant curator actually has been working with the giant panda since, um, since Mei Shang and um, Tian since Tian came in. Wow. And it, since, yeah, since they arrived and f- was there for all the births. So 
it's such it's so great to have that um yeah the passionate keepers expertise expertise. and then the passionate i mean i could i couldn't do my job and i couldn't have learned everything i i did if i didn't have um my assistant curator Lori thompson to show me the ropes and to teach me all about giant pandas so i mean she's still my go-to for all my questions like she's she's like the guru yep she's the panda guru so um (laughs) but it's it's amazing because uh there's something about working with a species that's so it's so charismatic and like I would say universally loved. I I, I mean, Um, honestly, yes. If, if you don't, if you don't look at a panda and just see cuteness, happiness, feel like love in your heart, I don't know what to tell you. (laughs) I mean, right. They're just adorable. It's funny though. It, they definitely are, but at the other hand, other end, you have to remind people that this is a a wild animal bear. bear. Animal, a bear, and like we don't go in with pandas, so they're we we maintain them and care for them like we do most of our other species. So they're protected contact. So we you would never see a keeper in with an adult panda. Um, we, you know, with cubs there is cub management, and you there is uh, there is a contact element with cubs. But once they start reach about a year, we would no longer go in with yeah. a cub. I mean, you think they can crush a three inch diameter piece of bamboo with their jaws? They have a tremendous jaw strength, so we know that they would be dangerous to go in with an animal like that. But well, I imagine they do. They have big canines. They do. I mean, they're a carnivore, so they have canines yeah. and they have a jaw so, strength. Yeah, you don't... <laughs> yeah. No, thank you. Yeah. yeah. But on the other hand, they're also very, um, they work really well with the keepers. So they are uh, really easily trained. Um, we have them trained. Okay, yeah, that for... was going to be one of my questions. No, so I we have training them... behavior. No, we have a, an amazing uh, panda keeper relationship and they're able to do amazing things with them. So, um, they are all trained for lots of medical behavior. So um, we can do voluntary blood draws from them. We can do ultrasounds, both abdominal and cardiac ultrasounds. Um, we've done awake radiographs. We, there's so many things that you, you can do with them. And we, we and have. The, and, just to re, oh, and just to remind the listeners, this is all through protective contact. Yeah. We actually have built into our facility, like sleeves that they'll put their arm out that the. Cool. Um, veterinarians uh-huh. can come and draw blood from we use those same sleeves to like radiograph like wrist and elbow and other parts of the of the panda so it really is all through this relationship that the keepers have built with the pandas that we're able to get this voluntary participation from the pandas so uh are they intelligent to work with or how is there they are they're but they're motivated by different things. So like sometimes well, they have personality, right? They do. They definitely do. Uh-huh. All our different pandas have, are, you know, have a different personality. So, um, but I guess I probably am most because of Bebe was so young and I have like have had more access to him. I probably feel more akin to him, but I sort of think of him as like a silly teenage boy right now because he's, you know, an adolescent now. He, you know, hasn't quite reached sexual maturity. So he's a little, gangly and like silly at time awkward Uh, awkward and still trying to learn you know how to move through you know through his environment but he has such personality so you know he'll vocalize like i'll walk through the building and he's waiting for his yard to be set up and he'll be sitting there and he'll like you know sort of vocalize to you like winnie and he's like waiting for his to go out to 
explore and to have his day. So it's amazing to have that uh, access and to be able to spend time with him like that. And to watch him grow. Yes, definitely. Yeah. All the different behavioral changes from, yeah, being in, you know, a juvenile, young juvenile toddling around to growing into pretty soon a, a mature individual. I bet that is just incredible journey to be on. Not only, like you said, for yourself, but for the millions of people that can obviously go visit the zoo, but then also participate on, on the National Zoo's Panda Cam. So that is awesome. And now, Michael, you actually fell into one of my favorite interview traps. And <laughs> so <laughs> you can always say no. Uh, but when you say, I love behavior and communication, uh, some of my areas of expertise, uh, when you say vocalization, because I, I have not had the pleasure of seeing any pandas, um, either, of course, in the wild or living under human yeah. care. So I, I guess I'm not familiar with their vocalization. So I didn't know if you could maybe give our listeners um, a preview of your best interpretation of a baby call. Uh, no, I am horrible at impersonations, <laughs> especially at vocalizations. Uh, but, you know, it was one of those, those things that I was not aware of about pandas so do, is do they whine or bark or chuff or they they do all those things so oh. they have a very wide repertoire of uh, vocalizations and actually the time that you see them most often is actually during uh breeding so okay. like during estrus and breeding there's a lot of vocal communication especially between our male and our female that sort of let us know like when a female is approaching estrus so it's one of the indicators that our keepers are looking for for um the approach of estrus and and when we might know that she would be ready for either breeding receptive and for breeding. And so, uh, they, 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 yeah, there's a whole wide host of the vocalizations that really help us as indicators. And so even the wine, you won't, you don't want to just throw out, I can can always edit it out. I really cannot. I'm horrible. People would be like, what is that? That animal's dying or something. We need your panda guru. Uh, well, no, I can maybe I'll, maybe I'll splice one in. They'll be like, "Oh my god, he's, yeah. he's amazing at it." No, definitely, you can Google panda vocalizations, okay. and there's so many. Yeah, there's quite a few different ones, but yeah. Well, and it's just uh, it's very fascinating to me uh, to learn that they have all these uh, this different language, like you said, depending on if they're upset and they want to come in, or if they see uh, you know a, a con specific, or if they're if it's that time of year and they're ready to breed. So yeah, I'm sure there's a lot too that that's when with pandas living under human care with the keepers and the staff and the scientists around them, just, it must be just so fascinating to learn about all of these things that there's several animals, of course, in the wild that we know none of these, as I do this podcast, I just did one on the Saula, the Asian unicorn hoofstock species. And I mean, we have no idea. I mean, of course it vocalizes and it communicates with its con specific, but that, I mean, nobody, nobody knows it's not been recorded. I, I can't even tease anybody to, to try to do a, <laughs> to try to do a, <laughs> uh, an, an interpretation. And so I just think it's, it, uh, the panda is just so amazing and iconic that we do It's I bet you just probably learn from it every day, I would imagine. Which yeah. Is just, and they, and yeah, that's part of the amazing things and the things we've learned. Um, a lot of it is, was about reproduction. So there, you know, there's some really, really unique things about panda reproduction and, and we learned so much about that uh, 
keeping them at, at the national zoo. So, I mean, uh, pandas, um, females only come into estrus once a year. Mm-hmm. Uh, they may be only able to conceive for a very small window, like 24 to 48 hours. Wow. And so there really is, um, a lot of energy that goes into panda breeding in terms of at, at the national zoo and in the wild. If you think about their, the communication that has to happen between a male and a female, cause they're, they're, they're solitary. They live by themselves in the wild. And so the way that, uh, so they're solitary in the wild. And so the way that a male and female would communicate is primarily through scent. So mm-hmm. there'd be a lot of scent marking. And as a female is per, you know, approaching peak at stress, a male would be following her and then they would actually breed. So, so yeah, so we also do the same thing uh, at the national zoo. So we, we utilize sort of the behavior, but then we also have a whole component of endocrinology that goes into it. So we have um, endocrinologists who are um, looking at uh, estrogen levels and progesterone levels in urine that our keepers are collecting. Um, as we approach peak estrus, where we have keepers there 24 hours and we're collecting every single urine sample so that we mm-hmm. can time um, we, our artificial insemination um, when we think would be optimized, hopefully conception at that point in time. So we have like science staff sitting in a lab waiting for each urine sample um, to run their analysis. I want so that. that. I want that. Yeah. <laughs> so it's amazing. So it really is a nice, um, that's the one point in time in the year where we really have a, a great collaboration between um, endocrinologists and our reproductive scientists and um, our animal care staff who all work together to actually hopefully day and night. produce yeah. day and night to, to have um, uh, conception and hopefully a cup. So um, I've been through two estruses um, since I've been at the national zoo um, in uh, 2017 and 2018. Unfortunately, they were both unsuccessful and a cub was not born. But to go through the whole process of, um, you know, tracking the female, both endocrinology and behaviorally, and then planning um, uh, artificial insemination. So we actually would, um, we anesthetize the male and we collect mm-hmm. um, a fresh semen sample from him. Um, mm-hmm. And then we anesthetize anesthetize the uh, female um, for the insemination as well. So it's just amazing to get all those people around to do it. Yeah. And and I can't even, I mean, I can't even imagine obviously how amazing that is and how, like you said, the team of people that come in to do that and to help with that and to make it as most, most successful as possible. And then also of course, when it's not successful, potentially taking notes and following the hormones and following the animal's behavior and learning out, learn, you know, trying to learn more about, okay, well, why or how can we improve things? And I think that that's probably, obviously, I, you know, not, I don't know a lot about pandas, but I've been able to participate a lot in uh, art of, uh, semen collection and artificial insemination in horses. And it's a model between horses and, and cattle. Uh, it's a model that we know a ton about uh, because we've been a- able, able to research it since they're domestic animals. We have a lot of access to it, and they're large. So right. especially ultrasounding a horse and a cow is uh, not easy in the beginning, but uh, after you do it long enough, like hundreds of hours, like I have done, it, it becomes a lot easier. And you can, and then that's when you can really like study things and learn things about them. And, of course, with such an endangered animal like the panda, uh, you, you're – 
you're not, you're only doing it, like you said, that one time a year. And you're not able to, like me as a grad, you know, young graduate student, I could go out and ultrasound a horse every day until I got good at it. And so it's, you know, it's just, it's just, it's a, you know, a huge learning curve that has made leaps and bounds because you said there's been, Three cubs born at the National Zoo. Correct? Yeah, three cubs born at the National Zoo, and actually, the the um, uh, XC two population is actually at five hundred and twenty now. So in China, there's over five hundred and twenty um, pandas um, mm-hmm. in sort of the panda breeding centers, and so that's wow. part. Of it. It's amazing. So they too have we've really product, um, perfected the science of breeding um, awesome. pandas in you know at, at in these great centers. And so it's, yeah. it's amazing that where we've come um, in the last like 15 years um, mm-hmm. with breeding. And so now are there any um, natural breeding uh, attempts or is it all through AI just so you can, um, for listeners out there, I know I'm not sure Michael can answer the question about in the panda world, but I know like in the equine world or cow world, um, artificial insemination is key because then that way we can move the gametes genetics from one male who's has desired traits or that we really want more of. Uh, we can ship it across the country and put it into a female and they can have a baby that way. They don't actually have to like get together, right? There doesn't have to be any romantic music or any candles lit or anything like that. Um, so I was just wondering in the panda world, obviously artificial insemination seems to be the route to go, but is natural breeding ever used or is that just not the main model? Um, well, they use it a lot more um, in China. We, we, you know, we've, we've not had a successful uh, natural breeding with Meishang or Tian Tian at Smithsonian's national zoo. Um, part of it is we really have to wait till the behavioral indicators line up um, right, for that. Exactly. And then yeah. also knowing that, um, if we wait and let them attempt um, naturally, we might not get a um, an adequate sample from the male if we go have to go through uh, the to, following the other steps. Yes, yeah, following if we we gave mm-hmm. them an opportunity to breed um, naturally, but then if they never were able to successfully breed uh, naturally, then we might have lost our opportunity to obtain a fresh uh, sample from sample, him. right. For artificial insemination, for yeah, artificial so insemination. Of- so it's a lot of, you have to weigh the costs and benefits, but definitely in China, they, there, there are um, proven natural breeders. And I think it's especially important in thinking about reintroduction. You want to know that if you put them out there, they're going to be able to breed uh, again, uh, naturally, right. because out in the wild, there isn't going to be the management of um, artificial insemination. So they, you know, they've done a lot of research. They have a much larger number. You know, we have one breeding male, one breeding female, but they have, you know, 500 animals over in China that they're working with. And so they've actually done a lot of research. And, and that's part of, you know, in our, in our collaboration with our Chinese colleagues is, is looking at those things. So I know they've done a lot of um, research on, uh, male-male competition is actually somewhat important um, in terms oh, of yes. successful natural breeding and is knowing that they're, that they're by, you know, and, and mate choice for females, like that they actually sure. have a choice between two males where we just don't have that um, at ours that where capacity. we have one male, mm-hmm. that capacity, we have one male, one female. So those are all things that are great. But I mean, you know, once we go through the artificial insemination, then, then, you know, we continue to track the female all through, um, 
would be potential births. So uh, the um, it's interesting because another interesting aspect of panda biology is they're delayed implanters. So oh, after yeah, they're so after cool. so after they you've had um, what we you would consider to be conception, um, there's a long period of time before the embryo would actually implant in the uterus and continue development. So after the sperm and the egg meet, they just sit sort of in stasis until they implant into the uterus and continue development. So they actually, while it's, it's hard to explain, but their gestation can have such a wide range uh, of time because it can Mm -hmm. sit, sit there. Um, It can be up. I've seen up to 300 days for a just like a true gestation from time of insemination to birth. Um, Mm -hmm. So that's why it's important for us to continue to track the female um, all through that period of time. So we continue to collect daily urine samples that are um, analyzed by our endocrinologist. And so what we're waiting for is um, what we consider to be implantation um, to mm-hmm. sort of start the countdown for for a for a birth. Um, so we're looking for what we call a secondary rise in progesterone. So mm-hmm. that's generally what we know is that the uterus is getting ready for an implantation. And then we sort of could know that we're within the window of when we might expect a cub. So it's, you know, they're amazing, amazing creatures. And then on top of that, um, female pandas go through what we call a pseudo pregnancy as well. Mm-hmm. So um, mm-hmm. both endocrinology so their hormones look like they're pregnant so we see that secondary rise in progesterone um and then behaviorally they act like they're pregnant as well so they'll go into a denning mode they'll go and start building a nest and act like they're pregnant and then all of a sudden one day like their progesterone drops back down to baseline and they get up and walk out of their the den and never get birth. So while it's really great to have like the endocrinology tracking and us tracking behaviorally, really the only true way we can confirm pregnancy is actually through ultrasound. So if we were to see a cub developing, but they have such a short window that they actually develop because they're really small. Yeah. So once the, once the embryo is finally implanted in the uterus, then they technically are only growing the panda cub uh, for what? 70, 80 days? No. 40, 40 to 50 days only generally 40 to 50 days. 40 about to 50 what we, days. Yeah. I mean, yes. how, I mean, unless you were ultrasounding them frequently, I mean, and let alone the size, they start off very, very small and they're actually born pretty small too, considering that they grow into giant pandas to large, to yeah. large pandas. So I imagine on ultrasound, it, it's, it's not being, being an experienced ultrasounder myself. I imagine it's probably not the easy, <laughs> even if they're trained for it, I probably imagine it's a really difficult job. So kudos to your uh, vet veterinarian and keeper staff that, that do that because I can't even, <laughs> that's gotta be a tough job. Yeah, no, as we're approaching the anticipated birth window, we're ultrasounding them twice a day. Mm -hmm. Uh, So we're pulling them. uh, We have a space built into our facility. We call it the training cage where we have ports built into it. Okay. So we have ports built into it so that the veterinarians have access with the ultrasound probe. Mm -hmm. Our keepers lie the panda down and then our veterinarians are ultrasounding them generally twice a week. The really other sort of thing that impedes our opportunity or our, the, the 
access to the panda for ultrasound is that they get really spacey or sort of they're you know they're hormonal and their hormones and behavior is driving them towards denning and they're spending a lot of time in their den and getting ready oh, for birth. I know about so, pregnant I know about pregnancy hormones. Trust me. Right. I I I can only imagine. Yes. And we uh and with my friends and uh, some of my, my mom Facebook groups, we, we call it mom brain. So uh, No and pandas get that as well, definitely. Pandas so get mom brain. Who knew uh, that? That's awesome. So they, I love them even more sh- now. So she she's not food motivated at all. It's not like you there's any and now that I can't that... relate to. <laughs> <laughs> my my husband probably wish I was wishes I was more like a panda uh during pregnancy. He doesn't mind the spaciness, but yeah, going out for food runs and late in the night, primarily frozen yogurt with lots of toppings, uh is not his favorite task. So so but so interesting. So they go off food or they're not as they, food motivated. Well they yeah. actually yeah, they're not food motivated, they actually go off food and they're Pretty much their oh. den egg. So they're spending time okay. in their den getting ready. Um, they're sleeping a lot and getting now, ready for birth. Isn't that just a fascinating, uh, from a physiological point of view, that when uh, the female panda's body is, it, the embryo is finally implanted and now it's time mm-hmm. for the embryo to grow when it, so it needs nutrients. Uh, and that's when the mom pulls back food to spend more time preparing it a nice, soft, safe place to to be born and that her body's able obviously i would assume without really knowing much about panda physiology that uh she must be drawing from her fat reserves uh or something in order to help grow that uh, that panda that's incredible i mean that's i mean that's one of the great things about delayed implantation as well is so you would they would know like they've sort of reached a certain threshold of probably fat reserves and like sure, that must dietary, be. like that they've hit this point nutritionally where they are feel like they could support a pregnancy and a birth. And so it is advantageous to have that delayed implantation. So it's been a good year from bamboo and bamboos, you know, the, the shoots and, and they've eaten well and they've, Are they're green and yummy. Yeah. Yeah. And they've done a great job and that's when they would implant and continue uh, that. Wow. So, I mean, there is a uh, lot of evolution. I know. It's so incredible. And then, and it, and that, of course, you and I studied this in books, you know, many years ago or what, but then now you get to like watch it unfold on a daily basis. That is so cool, Michael. <laughs> and, um, and so once a pregnancy is confirmed through ultrasound, <laughs> what does your staff do to help prepare for a panda birth? Because this is, this is not your, obviously, any birth is exciting, of course. I mean, who doesn't love any any birth of any any animal? But I would imagine this is, I mean, especially since it's on loan from China, I would imagine this is this is what I would, you know, this is like a superstar, you know, giving birth. This is the, you know, I don't know, Angelina Jolie giving birth type of like, oh, all eyes are on you, right? Yeah. I would assume. I don't, yeah. I, I don't, yeah, I don't want to put any words in your mouth, but I would imagine that it's 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 a. I mean, well, it's, of course it's a big deal. It's a panda for goodness sakes. Yeah. So how do you and your staff kind of prepare for that? Or uh, if you can walk me through a little bit what goes on behind the yeah. scenes there. While I've not been at the National Zoo for a panda birth, you know, we have a whole mechanism of things that we do to prepare. So we actually close down the panda house and we sort of turn it into a quiet zone. So we sure. want to give her as much privacy and quiet as possible as she's preparing for a birth. Um, and then we actually also work with our colleagues in China to identify uh, nursery staff from 
from one of our sister sort of uh, panda breeding centers to bring out. So, I mean, they're, they have way more experience dealing with cubs than we do. And so we we sort of organize and uh, collaborate to try to bring out staff from, um, from there as well. Nursery staff who are are more in tune. Yeah. From China. Yeah. So we, we bring over staff to help us should, uh, you know, should we have a, a, a birth or twins because that is the other uh, issue is that uh, not issue, but uh, the other thing is, is they just won't give birth to one. There is a possibility they'll give birth to two. Um, so twins um, we do know from, from history that uh, generally in births of twins and pandas that only one cub will survive. Mm-hmm. So we have to be prepared for um, like, we'll only have always have two. And so right. part of that is to, to get, people um to help us with that process so wow that is just incredible i mean that's just so incredible and then you come in there and then you get to watch the baby grow up they stay with mm-hmm. and then once they're born they're gonna stay with their mom for a while is that correct yeah, generally they're about um, 18 months of age before they're weaned. Okay. So they usually stay with mom through the whole first year. And as uh, generally, they notice this also in the wild, as they're approaching breeding season of that second year, mm-hmm. um, it's when they'd leave mom. So, okay. so, so by the time uh, breeding season recent, by the time breeding season reaches the second year and the cub's about 18 months of age, uh, they would leave mom. So yeah, so we weaned him. Um, in, when did we do that? That was in March of 2017. Um, he was weaned and moved into his own exhibit yard at that point in time. Okay. Aww. And can you tell me just uh, a little brief, just because I have such a, a, a cool picture of Bebe in my mind. So what, what does he do? What's he do? Does he just like climb on things all day? Does he roll around? I mean, I know he probably eats and sleeps, but I imagine since he's a juvenile, mm-hmm. he's probably a little more playful. Yeah. So he generally, he does a lot of climbing still as a juvenile. Mm -hmm. So he spends a lot of time in the trees in his yard. Um, so generally, um, our keepers start around six 30 in the morning. Um, and they come in and the first thing they always do is, um, we have this amazing facility and, uh, uh, especially set up with Panda or with cameras. Mm-hmm. We call it the Panda cam like operation room. And we have let you think about like the NASH, NASA, you think about the NASA operation room. We have a room with like, you know, three widescreen TVs. And then we have like <laughs> all these other like views. Cause we have 41 cameras set up. But, they uh, are, across so, our they Panda are celebrities, facility. man. I love it. And so they come in and that's the first thing the keepers do is they find all the pandas on the cameras and they spend a little bit of time watching them from overnight, um, in their, their indoor enclosures. Um, and then, um, you know, they do a little bit of record keeping and start their day and then they go out and set up the yards Mm -hmm. for the pandas and they go out and they, you know, take the bamboo and, you know, set up different, um, enrichment for them. So part of, you know, while they only eat bamboo, we know that, um, at the zoo, we also support them with um, other food types. So they get produce. So they get sure. sweet potatoes and apples and carrots. And then they also get um, a, a primate biscuit as well. Mm-hmm. So another like leaf eater type. Um, F- high fiber. Biscuit, mm-hmm. A high fiber biscuit. And that's what we use in the, in the enrichment. So like balls and spools and other things with holes that we put the biscuits in. So they actually have to work to get their job. Because in the wild, they would be covering a wide area and, and 
working to get the bamboo. And so we want the, to duplicate that. And so we make them work for their food a little bit. You also. make, yeah, so, you make that baby work. <laughs> and he definitely does. He loves his, um, balls and his other things. The other really thing, the thing that he loves most actually are tubs. He'll sit in tubs. So like, if you ever notice in his exhibit, there's always something for him to like sit in or sit on because he is like, he would love, like, you can imagine him lounging in a bathtub, like, because uh, we'll put a giant tub in there and he'll just sit in there and he'll grab his bamboo and sit there and eat it and chomp on it, just relaxing in the tub. So oh man, that's that, one of his favorite things. Oh, uh, so. I love baby. I'm going to have to come by and, and see him in person. That's for sure. But for our listeners too, that Maybe aren't obviously, or if you're in the Washington uh, DC area or anywhere near, if, and if you haven't yet, oh my gosh, uh, you, obviously, if you didn't already love pandas after listening to Michael describe some of their amazing behaviors and unique adaptations and their just how generally fun they are to watch, definitely go to the zoo and check them out. Uh, but there's also this panda cam you mentioned, uh, and yeah, so if you go to the Smithsonian's National Zoo website, um, we have panda cams and we always have uh, two pandas on view 24 hours wow, a day, okay. all night long as yeah. well. Um, and then you can visit um, us like remotely as well or over the internet. So it's amazing that we're able to share our pandas uh, worldwide. Right. So I can well. just be on the bus bored and watching Bebe in his mock bathtub uh, eating bamboo and just chillaxing. Mm-hmm, definitely. Yes, you can. That is yeah. awesome. And now, um, and you said that, uh, obviously just go to the Smithsonian National Zoo website. I'm sure, or I'm sure if you just Googled, you know, Washington Zoo or probably the easiest way to find our pandas, um, is if you go and Google panda cam, um, at National Zoo, you will find them very easily. Awesome. And of course, the, uh, the National Zoo has a Facebook page, which I'm sure is filled with, Amazing updates. I know I like them on Facebook and, um, and Twitter. I am not into Instagram yet. I need to get there. I just, you know, I, I, it's a, I'm not, I guess it's just my, my mom brain. I feel like I'm too busy and overwhelmed, but I, I recommend most normal people do Instagram. So I'm sure they have an Instagram page as well where you get amazing photos of not only the panda family there, but of course all the other brilliant and amazing animals at the National Zoo. And now Michael, thinking back to your time, in college as a young budding biologist. And then of course you took your, you took the leap of faith to work at the Cheyenne mountain zoo and then Lincoln park. And then now at the national zoo, what advice can you give to somebody that wants to get involved with some kind of cam- conservation, perhaps pandas, right. Uh, to follow in your footsteps or just any animals in general. I mean, I think for me and then looking at, uh, candidates and people that I want to join my team is, is practical experience. So whether it's an internship or you're volunteering at a zoo, I think is probably the first avenue to really get involved. Um, many zoos have a volunteer program or, in, or an internship pro- program, and that's the way that you get your foot in the door. Um, I actually, my first job at a zoo was actually um, in horticulture. I took care of plants. Um, that way I could get to know the animal care managers mm-hmm. and um, really show that I was um, show my work ethic sure. because I think 
and just show my passion, like that I was willing to do something else just to, to get my foot in the door. And, um, but yeah, so sort of practical experience. I mean, coursework is always important, but I think, um, any sort of practical experience that you can get through, um, your college, whether it's a, you know, study abroad or a semester abroad and, and working on a conservation program or earth watch trip or anything like that, where you can show, um, you know, that this is the career that you want to do and, and, and making those initial steps into conservation. Awesome. And now for listeners that, of course, a lot of our listeners are at, um, animal keepers or conservationists that are in the field and loving the field. But we do have a lot of, a lot of listeners too that just love animal and biology behavior in general, but they may have a different career. What could the average listener do that isn't able to, or, or isn't either able to have a job or volunteer, um, in an animal field? What could they do to, to help the giant panda conservation, both overseas and then also here too in the United States? I mean, I think the number one thing is to visit your local zoo. Um, I think zoos are doing amazing conservation work. Um, they're really working all to save species. And so I think that you can make a really big in, impact by just supporting your local zoo um, and, and the programs that, that are near and dear to their heart. So at the Smithsonian National Zoo, yeah, Giant Pandas is one of our major projects. But, um, you know, your local zoo is doing um, really some great, maybe small local conservation projects as well. They're just as important. So I think your local zoo is a great avenue to show um, and to support conservation. Awesome. And I must ask my last question. One of the mo most important questions. Just kidding. Not really. Uh, mm -hmm. Would you hire me again? Right away. No doubt. There's, I, there's it was one little, of my best. There was a little pause. No, <laughs> no, no, no pause. Well, you're overqualified now, though. That's the problem. Oh, stop it. Stop it. That is, that is completely untrue. Uh, I, as, as you're talking about, uh, the late nights, uh, watching the pandas 24 hours, I'm like, I want that job. I would do it for free. I shouldn't say that on air. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, I, I, you know, that's one of the things that I've actually enjoyed most of my, about my career is actually seeing the success of other people that I've, worked with, um, and, and where they've gone and the things that they've accomplished. I think I get sometimes more joy to see other people's, um, like accomplishments as much as my own. Well, I mean, it I think was, it's, to, it's, it's, to know, yeah, I think it's actually a reflection of you and our time together and some of our other colleagues of just, I mean, we've got to have coffee every morning and talk shop, of course, talk family and friends too, but know that we are, in the right setting, doing the right things, young in our careers, the world theoretically is our oyster if we just work hard enough and work together and keep learning and growing. And and then you meet people like yourself, like me meeting you and some of our other great colleagues along the way. It's like a support network. And then you have these people that support you to reach out and attain your dreams and or do things you're kind of scared to do. Like it was probably a little scary for you to take this job with a such a high profile, iconic species that you had, like you said, you hadn't worked with. Um, but you had great mentors and that and of course, not only at Lincoln Park Zoo, but then, like you said, then you got into the National Zoo and had the 
best staff ever that just took you under their wings. And that's what we do. We support each other. So, yeah. oh, cool. Which is why you were so graciously agreed to take your morning off to talk to me. And I just really appreciate your time. And I appreciate your career and what you've done, obviously for the Panda, which is what we focused on today. But I know Michael way back. I won't even share our age for how many years and the amount of species that he's worked with and helped. And and not only the species, the animals, which of course are a huge part of it, but Michael is a huge educator. And so the amount of students, co-workers, um, voluntary staff, uh, docents, just everything that he's is very passionate in, and everything that you're just very passionate about teaching people and helping people understand how amazing, obviously the panda, but other animals are to, to conserve and to learn about and to love. And so I just want to thank you for your service to both animals and then, um, and to people and keep up the good work. And I, uh, this was so much fun. I'm, I'm, I'm going to bother you again soon to do this, this, uh, coffee conversations about pandas. Um, and since you are at the Asia Trail at the National Zoo, I'm sure there's plenty of other species we could pick to have conversations about as well. Yeah. It's been amazing catching up with you over, I think, you know, co- you know, the conversation over coffee this morning is great. I mean, I think it's the best way to sort of catch up with each other and to talk about the giant pandas and the amazing work that, Smithsonian's National Zoo is doing and that the other institutions um, in the United States and, you know, even our colleagues in China. So it, uh, it's great to be able to talk with you and educate you a little bit about, about giant pandas today. So. Oh, yes, definitely. Well, listeners, um, I'll add some links to the show notes, of course, the panda cam, but if you haven't already Googled them as we're talking, uh, check them out and the website links will be on our show notes and you can learn more about these fascinating creatures because Michael and I just touched on some of a few of the really cool facts about them. So anyways, thank you, Michael. Um, stay in touch and give that, um, baby, blow him, a, blow him a kiss for me because I, I love him very, very much. <laughs> Well, thank you so much, Angie. Awesome. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye.